0: First Kings, chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. Um, if you've not been with us for a few weeks, uh, you may have missed the announcement that we are taking, a, we're pausing our series in Luke uh, until after the new year. We'll come back to Luke. Uh, we, are, we ended where Jesus is about ready to enter Jerusalem, uh, the first day of what we call the Passion Week we'll come back to that and, uh, and look at that uh, beginning after the new year all the way up through Easter uh, and the resurrection. So we look forward to that. But in the meantime, we're going to take a little bit of a detour uh, back uh, to the Old Testament to, uh, to Elijah, uh, the great prophet, uh, the prophet that uh, the people were expecting to come again and to uh, bring the good news that... The kingdom of God was coming and at hand, and so uh, as we uh, work our way towards the season of Advent, (laughs) we uh, we look at uh, the first Elijah, uh, the one who God uh, placed um, in the uh, time and place of the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. And so uh, before we get to our text this morning, I want to ask everyone, particularly kids like What is in a name? What's in a name? Do you know what your name means? Do you know what your name means? A couple of you might uh, be finding out this morning what your name means uh, from uh, Elijah. Um, My name, Jonathan, means Yahweh has given. In, in many cultures, the meaning of a name is taken very seriously, right What you name someone is a very serious thing, and uh, it's believed in those cultures that a person will grow into their name. that what their meaning of their name is given is somehow directs who that person will become and that's why we often find in the Bible what a name means, right? The Hebrew culture was very serious about the meaning of a name, and so we see in the Bible over and over again that when someone is named or when uh, a name is, is given, there is an explanation of what that name means. Think of Abraham when God gave Abraham his name. Right? He was uh, um, he was uh, uh, before he was Abraham. Um, he was Abram, right? And Abraham means the father of many nations. Joshua, who helped lead the people into the promised land, Joshua means Yahweh is my sa- salvation. Samuel, the uh, prophet, means Yahweh has heard. Jesus, we're told, means that Yahweh saves. It's the Greek form of Joshua, uh, or the Arabic form of Joshua, and so it means Yahweh saves. And the, the meaning of names are important, especially, as I said, in the Bible. They help us understand some of what God is communicating to us in his word. Sometimes we don't have a whole lot of explanation in the, in the scripture, but the, the name of the person is there, and it helps us to understand what God is communicating through the names of those he uses for his purposes, so this morning we begin a new series in the life of the prophet Elijah. And we'll see this morning that the meaning of his name gives us what we'll need to know to properly understand what God is communicating to us through his word, right? These aren't just some stories that God puts in scripture for us to read and to, to know kind of some things that happened in the, in the ancient world. But these, this is God's word to us Using the prophet Elijah and even in his name, we begin to see what God is trying to communicate to us, to his people then and to his people now. So let's read 1 Kings, beginning at chapter 16, verse 29 through 17, verse 7. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Siodians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest, Sagab. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, son of Ahab, said to Ahab, "As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word." And the word of the Lord came to him, "Depart from here, and turn eastward eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there so he went and did according to the word of the Lord he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in Israel, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Word, Jesus, who has made flesh and dwelt among us. We pray that as we come to your Word today, we would see more of you, more of your Son Jesus, Lord. That we would be not only transformed by it, but conformed to it. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to Elijah's life and what the Lord is communicating to us through his life and ministry, we need to understand the context and the background for what is happening in Israel at this time. The nation of Israel is now a divided kingdom. There's two tribes in the south making up the kingdom of Judah and 10 tribes in the north making up the kingdom of Israel. And this is where we find ourselves in our text, in the northern kingdom, in the nation, uh, uh, the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom is still about 100 years until they will be carried off into exile by the Syrians, and Judah is still about 250 years until they will be carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And both kingdoms are exiled at these different times because of their great sin against God and against their fellow people. And while the writings of the kings were likely, first and second kings, were likely written over a period of time, they were most likely compiled into the current form while the people of Israel were in exile. And this is important for us to know and to remember as we study the life of Elijah to understand that the book of, the books of the kings were written over this time but compiled While Israel was in exile, as you can imagine, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC and the events that immediately followed it came as a devastating blow to the people of Judah. Jerusalem lay in ruins, ordinary homes and palaces, and most importantly, the temple, the great symbol of Yahweh's presence with Israel was destroyed. Many had been killed, and many others had been deported to Babylon. And the pain and grief of the time is well expressed in Lamentations 1, chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Try to put yourself in that place in time. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. My guess is that many in Ukraine are asking that same question, seeing that right now as well. How lonely sits a city that was full of people. You see, this isn't just a text for that time and place <laughs> those people it's a text for all times and places for all people how lonely sits the city that was full of people can you put yourself there and if you can what did it all mean was Israel's God not in control of nature and history? Were there other more powerful gods in Babylon because, Babylon because the Babylonians were victorious over Israel? If the God of Moses did exist and was good and all-powerful, how was it that God's chosen city and temple had been destroyed? And how was it that God's chosen royal line, the line of David, seemed to come to an end? The books of the kings have to be understood in this context. In the context of those who are wondering and questioning, where is God? Who is God? God. They are a historical and sustained response to these and other questions. They were designed to provide their initial audience and us a true interpretation of what happened to Israel in 586 BC. Israel's God, our God, is fully in control of nature and history. There is no other. There are no more powerful gods anywhere. It is, in fact, this good and all-powerful God who has himself overseen the destruction of his chosen city and temple and has chosen to send his people into exile. The reason of these actions lies in Israel's great sinfulness. Israel has not obeyed God or heeded his word through the prophets. And the fact that God is one, the one true God, represents both the ultimate reason for the events in 586 B.C., but also the ultimate hope for restoration For if there is only one God, nothing and no one can frustrate his purposes. With all this in mind, we come to our text this morning. Maybe people like the people then questioning, wondering, where is God in the midst of this? And the question that we're confronted with from our text is, is Yahweh your God? Right? Is Yahweh the, the, the covenant God, the, the special name that God gave to his people, is Yahweh your God? It's the question our text poses to us this morning. Is Yahweh your God? God? Because the end of chapter 16 describes those who Yahweh is not their God, describes this new king Ahab that has come to power and how evil he was in the sight of the Lord. We get these few sentences describing how evil Ahab was. He was more evil than any king before him. He brought God to anger more than any king before him. He worshiped Baal. He set up a temple to Baal. He set up Asherah poles, another Middle Eastern deity. He turned to other gods and was an evil, evil king in how he treated his people. But we also get these strange few sentences about Jericho being rebuilt. You're like, what in the world? How does this have anything to do with Ahab or Elijah? But in both the information about Ahab and Ha'el of Bethel, we see descriptions of two people who display that Yahweh isn't their God. Ahab is very clear. (laughs) He worshipped Baal, set up Asherah poles. He was evil, did evil. But what about this, hail guy? Ahab, we see, like I said, through the worship of other gods, hail was not obeying the word of God spoken by Joshua. Remember Joshua who brought the people of Israel into the promised land and Jericho fell as they trusted God and marched around the city seven times? God, through Joshua, spoke a curse on anyone who would rebuild Jericho. So the question before us is, is Yahweh your God? And the main point of our passage this morning is because Yahweh is the true God, he is my God. Because Yahweh is the true God, he is my God. Baal is not God. Yahweh is my God. First, Baal is not God, verses 29 through verse 1 of chapter 17. As I mentioned, Ahab was an evil king worshiping Baal and setting up the Asherah poles saying these Asher pulls up to another deity. And in verse 30, we, see, we read that Ahab did more evil than all the kings that came before him. In verse 33, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than any king that came before him. And throughout First and 2 Kings, and then in our text specifically, it describes over and over again the moral wrongs that inevitably accompany false worship. You see, it's not just the fact that Ahab was worshiping Baal, as bad as that was. But false worship leads to false practice, leads to false living. False worship affects all of our lives. It's not just the thing or the... Person or the whatever I worship, and that's over here, and then everything else is is fine and dandy. But who or what we worship affects our entire lives. And in Ahab's case, it affected him to the point where he was the most evil king. He did so much evil in the sight of the Lord. He is the par excellence of evil king in the Old Testament. It's because he did not rightly worship. Over and over again throughout First and Second Kings in our text, it shows us that true worship of God is always bound up with obedience to the law of God and that the worship of something other than God inevitably leads to some kind of mistreatment of our fellow humanity in the eyes of God. Right? Our worship, our gathered worship, our private worship, our worship is directly linked to how we think, how we speak, how we care, how we serve other people. And so we must ask ourselves, what are the bales or Asherah poles in our life? And now we may kind of balk at that and be like, well, you know, think worshiping idols is such an ancient practice. No modern person would believe in such a thing. And yet any source of life, any explanation of reality, any strength for living that robs Christ of his exclusive glory in our hearts is an idol and will inevitably degrade us. Anything that takes the place of Yahweh, of Jesus, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, anything that takes the place of Him in our lives robs Him of His glory and will inevitably degrade us just like it degraded Ahab. Just like it degraded Hael of Bethel. A friend of mine describes idolatry this way. He said, This is the way idolatry works. It sidles up to the real God. It appropriates his language, his promises, but false gods never deliver. Right? They they look and they feel and they sound kind of like the real thing. Whether it was in the ancient world or today, right? I mean, you worshiped Baal because you believed that he had the power over nature. Over fertility. And so you worshiped Baal because you believed that there was a power there that was beyond yourself. And something of that is true. There is a power beyond ourselves, there is one who controls the wind and the waves. But it is not Baal. What is it in our lives that sidles up real (laughs) close to the real God, appropriates His language, His promises, but will fail to deliver? Baal is not my God. But does your God or my God go by a different name? To go by something so much more innocuous, so much more of an everyday aspect of our lives. Baal is not my God. But there are many gods in the pantheon of our modern life that many of us bow to each and every day, oftentimes without even knowing it. What are their names in your life? What ashra poles have you erected? Yahweh, on the other hand, is my God. Verse seventeen, chapter seventeen, verses one through seven. This man Elijah comes on the scene. He's from Tishbe; it's the home, his hometown, in the region known as Gilead. In the northern kingdom of Israel, east of the Jordan River, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. And as he comes on the scene, he kind of just, it just kind of pops out of nowhere. Kind of, he's like, ta-da, right? Now Elijah, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe. It's all, all we get. As I said, there is a lot in the name. And so now Elijah could also read, now my God is Yahweh comes on the scene. Elijah means my God is Yahweh. And it helps us understand what God is communicating to his people then and now. Elijah's ministry is aimed at proving that the Lord Yahweh is superior to all others. As we look at his life, that is the sole focus of Elijah. What God has called him to is to show his people that Yahweh is superior, greater, better, than anything or anyone else that they could put their faith or trust in. Elijah's miracles and interactions are all geared toward presenting a proper vision of who God is with great power over nature, but also with a nurturing and just eye for the disadvantaged. This is who the true God is. Now, there are three different Baal gods from antiquity. Many believe that this Baal is the same as the ancient Canaanite Baal, which was the god of storms and fertility. Another one of the Baals is also connected to the weather. And so, one of those two is what makes the most sense in the context of Elijah's prophecy. Because what is his prophecy saying to Ahab? His prophecy is saying that Yahweh, my God, is the one who controls the weather, not your God, Baal. And by withholding rain, Yahweh is demonstrating the power of his kingship in the very area of nature over which Baal is thought to have jurisdiction. And announcing this beforehand to Ahab is the means by which Yahweh's kingship and power are being portrayed. If Baal is the provider of rain, then this pronouncement by Elijah has no standing. It won't happen. But if Yahweh announces it, that he will withhold it, the contest is on. Let's see who wins. And God's word comes to Elijah and sends him away to a place where he will be safe as he awaits God to fulfill what he has promised. Right, he sends him away, depart from here and go to the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook, excuse me, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. It ends reminding us that God is in control of the rain. That what Elijah had prophesied to Ahab has come true. There is no longer water flowing in the brook because God is fulfilling his promise. And God... Protects Elijah by sending him away. Elijah's obedience to the word of God in his life is an essential aspect of God's protecting grace. He believes what God says and he follows God's word. Today, while we don't have bales or Asherah poles, we must decide what ideas, practices, and attitudes erode and then obliterate a biblical faith. What take the place of the only true God in our lives? We live in a world of pantheon of ideas, worldviews, lifestyles, theologies, and associations that are antithetical to biblical Christianity. These attachments deny the uniqueness of God's covenant with the church. They encourage adherence. It doesn't encourage adherence to our worship. and encourages worship of other things or God's and obliterates the authority of God in our daily lives. Like Elijah, we must know and understand what constitutes essential faith. Yahweh is my God. And whatever leads us away from clear biblical teaching about the Lord constitutes the opportunity for losing distinctive faith. It leads toward Baal being our God, not towards God, my God being Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, Elijah, as we read in James, is a man like us. Right? James is reminding us there is nothing special about Elijah other than who his special God is. Elijah was a person just like you and me. A person who believed, who knew that Yahweh is my God. Brothers and sisters, may we all, with one voice, be able to say, Yahweh is our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the reminder in the life of Elijah that you are our God. There is no other. Lord, you are the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. Your only son died for our sin and rose from the dead and your Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us. Lord, we pray that we we more and more live as those who have the name. Yahweh is my God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.